And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Emil at Lodiber. Then King David sent and brought him from from the house of Maker, the son of Emil at Lodiber, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The word of the Lord. I must say that uh, our scripture this morning has probably what is the most difficult to pronounce name, tongue twister name in the whole Bible, Mephibosheth. It's got a lot of those sounds to it. So if I stumble over that, I trip over that, I'm sorry. But I don't think there's like a good nickname, Mephi or something like that. Uh, But we will give Mephibosheth his due. And thank you so much, uh, uh, Tiffany, for, for, for doing that. You did a great job. And so we're continuing on in our sermon series on the life of David. It's called After God's Own Heart, because that's how uh, uh, David is identified. And so this is going to be a, a kind of a turning point in this series as we head up to Advent, which is less than a month away. And this is the last of the good David sermons. So, so far, uh, we've been dealing with David's rise, really his rise to the top. And uh, this is pretty much the point, the high point, the apex of David's story. And as Sarah McLaughlin once sang, it's a long way down to the place where we started from. And so it's going to be a long way down for David. So let's enjoy the view from the top this week. So at this point in the story, David is now, he's the king. Saul and Jonathan... The father and son, they have died in battle at the hand of the Philistines, and there's been a struggle for the throne after their deaths. It's after they die, David learns of their death, where we get that classic line in Scripture, oh, how the mighty have fallen. 
David says when he hears of that. So they've fallen. The mighty have fallen. But David has, has prevailed in the struggle for the throne of Israel. And he has built a palace for himself. He has returned the Ark of, of the Covenant. You know, this sacred religious object has been returned to Jerusalem. And so David has consolidated. He's centralized his power and his rule. And so the biggest question that David has to face now at this moment, that everything's come together, is what is he going to do with this power now that he is the king? And this week is a good example of what we see David doing with his power. And next week is going to be a very tragic example of what he's going to do with his power. But let's not get there too quickly. And it's important to think about what David does with the power that he's attained Because it teaches us about how God desires that we use power when it comes to the values of the kingdom. And in the New Testament, Jesus is frequently called the Son of God. But there's another title that we don't think about much and maybe we skip over. But Jesus is called the Son of David. And so understanding David helps us understand Jesus. Because David's connection to the the house and the line of David is important for understanding who he is and what he's doing. And how Jesus is a king-like and also, of course, as equally as important, a king very much unlike David. But it's in passages like this one this morning that David gives us the beginning of an understanding of what it means to be a godly king that Jesus will complete. And so we're going to examine this passage this morning and we're going to look at three questions that it raises for us. And the first question is, who was Mephibosheth? And the second, what does David give to him? And lastly, how can David give him what he gives him. So who is Mephibosheth? What does David give him? And how can David give him what he does give him? All right, so that first question, who is Mephibosheth? And so our passage is not the first place where we meet Mephibosheth in scripture. A few chapters before this in 2 Samuel 4, there's a one verse summary of Mephibosheth and his life. We're told that he was Jonathan's son, so he's Saul's grandson. And when the news came, uh, to his household that, that his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul had both been killed in battle. Scripture tells us that Mephibosheth's nurse, nurse fled from their hometown. She, she fled with little five-year-old Mephibosheth in tow. And that while they were fleeing, he fell and he injured his feet. And so he was, he was crippled. His feet were crippled uh, for the rest of his life. He was permanently disabled by this incident that happened when he was running after the death of his father and grandfather. And there's two things that get mentioned several times about Mephibosheth, that, that these were the most important things that people thought you needed to know about him. And, and, and both of them are marks against him as we enter into this passage. The first is that he was disabled, and the second was that he belonged to Saul's family. So first, the, the statement that he was crippled in both feet. Of course, this was long before the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? For centuries... It was the case and has been the case that having a physical disability has meant being viewed as, you know, less than in the eyes of wider society. And so as someone who was crippled, Mephibosheth would have been seen as sort of a a pathetic figure, a nuisance, a burden, someone whose life wasn't worth that much because he couldn't work. And so he was just a taker, not a maker. And I think it is truly one of the great legacies of the influence of Christianity in in the Western world that that at this point we we take for granted, most of us, that people with disabilities are not to be treated shamefully 
but with great honor. We affirm the, the, the image of God in each and every person, regardless of their circumstance or ability. And that's why for me, when I, when I think about doing ministry, one of the great shames for me that we have in this physical facility, which I love, is that it's not accessible to people with disabilities. And so I think about the kind of message that that sends when you're in a wheelchair and you can't enter in here to worship. It's terrible, and, and it, 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 it breaks my heart that this is the case. And I know that over the years, many people have thought this. And said, how can we change this? And, and the cost has been evaluated. And the reality is that things like an elevator, they're so expensive uh, that they're cost prohibitive. You can't spend money you don't have, right? And there's things like building codes, you know, so you can't just jury rig any old solution. But in forming, and, and you see this in the bulletin the last few weeks, forming this Elevate task force to get a lift in this building, it... it, it it's my strongest desire and, and commitment in this next year to remedy that situation. I'm trying to rally as many people as possible to changing this, doing whatever we can to change this reality. Because we can't send the message, the same message to people with disabilities that Mephibosheth culture did. That somehow, you know, he was less than and some, somehow they are less than. Uh, objects of, of shame. That your disability should keep you on the outside looking in. And so instead, our challenge is to send the opposite message. Right? You are welcome here. You are honored here. You are an insider here, just like the rest of us. And so when I'm thinking about the necessity of this project, I'm thinking of Mephibosheth. And the contrast between how his culture saw him and how David, the man after God's own heart, saw him. But more on that. In a little bit. All right, so the first answer to the question, who was Mephibosheth, was that he was disabled and therefore he was devalued culturally. But the second answer to that question is that he was from Saul's family, which meant that he was an enemy of David. In the ancient Near East, the, the common practice was that you were supposed to engage in once you became came king, once you displaced perhaps a previous ruling family, is that you would take all of the family of your rivals, you would round them up and you would have them summarily executed. We see this happen in, in the Bible when Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians and uh, the last uh, king of Judah, Zedekiah, is running away from the city and he's trying to flee from Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. They catch up to him. They take him and his sons captive and then they make the last thing, one of the last things Zedekiah sees in this brutal scene is he sees his two sons killed before his own eyes are put out. And he's carried away into exile. There was going to be no rival to the rule. And, but it was absolutely on, on par for what happened in the ancient world. But we can think of more modern examples of this happening, right? Uh, the communist revolutionaries, the Bolsheviks in, in Russia after seizing power, line up the Romanov family, the Tsar, the Tsarina, all his kids, summarily executed. Because the revolutionaries did not want there to be a rival to their power and their control. A, a sort of a, a rival, legitimate channel of power. That was important to their revolution succeeding. 
And so the expectation that everyone had of David when he became king and he inquired about the existence of any surviving family members from the house of Saul was that if and when David found them, he would kill them. It wasn't because he was a bad guy. That's just what kings do. This was the last step to total consolidation of David's power and the establishment of his own family as the sole legitimate royal line in the kingdom of Israel. And that's certainly what we can imagine Mephibosheth was thinking when he was hauled before David, right? That's why he threw himself on the ground. It says he paid him homage. But that word is, is that he, he prostrate himself on the ground. He groveled at David's feet. Why? Because he thought, this is it. I'm done. I'm a dead man. He says later that uh, a dead dog like me. That's how he understood his situation. Because that's just how power and politics work. So according to the conventions of the time, Mephibosheth was an outcast because of his physical condition. And he was an enemy because of his family. But this was not how David saw him. Because what David shows us is how we can look at the world in a different way. How we can see the world. How we can see people when we have eyes after God's own heart. And it's so important to remember that the whole story of David, it really starts with this idea of a different way of seeing. The heart of the David story is a different way of seeing. You know, Samuel said when when he was picking David, For his anointing, he said, human beings look at the appearance, but God looks at the heart. So it's a different way of seeing. And David doesn't just see with his eyes, he sees with his heart. So that when he looks at Mephibosheth, he he, he doesn't see someone who's crippled, someone who has a disability. He doesn't see an enemy. No, what David sees when he looks at Mephibosheth is an object of grace. Right? Someone who he can show grace, kindness, loyalty to. Which leads us to the second question. What does David give him? David gives him grace. Our translation says that David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. But again, it, it's, it, it brings us back to this word. It's just too weak. It's that, that H word or that ch word again. Chesed. David shows hesed to Mephibosheth. And hesed is a very special word. Eugene Peterson calls it loyal love. And he defines it in a way that that I find really helpful, so I just want to share it with you. He says, loyal love, hesed, kindness, as it says in our passage, is a way of life, so again, not, not a feeling, but a way of life that works for the good of another, brings out the best in the other, sees behind or beneath whatever society designates a person to be, disabled, inconvenient, a rival, worthless, dysfunctional, etc., and acts to affirm a God-created identity. So loyal love is a way of life that works for the good of another, brings out the best in the other, sees behind or beneath whatever society designates a person to be, and acts to affirm a God-created identity. Hesed is covenant love. And that's what David gives to Mephibosheth. And maybe the most helpful way to understand what covenant love is, is to contrast it with the opposite of that that we so often experience in our relationships in the 21st century. 
Most of our relationships are not founded on covenant commitments, but instead consumer preferences. Consumer relationships are based on the principle that you sacrifice the relationship in order to meet your personal needs. And this isn't always a terrible or insidious thing at all. This is what makes capitalism work. Until a month ago, you know, I I had a relationship with Comcast. But then CenturyLink came through my neighborhood offering me fiber optic internet at a lower cost, and so I ended my business relationship with, with Comcast in order to meet my need of having better internet at a lower price. Of course, it turns out that the CenturyLink representative was lying to me, and I was not getting fiber optic, but just DSL, and so now I am looking forward to ending my relationship with CenturyLink in order to have my needs met to not do business with a lying company in the future. But I I digress. So the problem isn't with consumer relationships, per se, where you sacrifice the relationship to have a personal need met. The, the, The problem comes in when that paradigm, sacrifice the relationship to have the need met, that becomes the predominant paradigm for all of the relationships in our lives. That's where the problem comes, where it takes over. Those values take over every relationship of our lives. Right, we see this reflected in our culture in, a, in an increasing fear of, of commitment that I can only call you know, pathological, meaning it's this sort of social sickness. People don't join any things anymore. And I'm, not, I'm not talking about church membership, membership and everything, less members of alumni associations, right? social clubs, bowling leagues, social services organizations, political parties. Just to name a few people. People don't join things. Because commitment has become associated with this idea of being trapped or boxed in or confined. It's even filtered into, you know, relationships, sex, dating. Why get married when you can swipe left, right? And why stay married when when you don't have to be unhappy? And as a pastor, of course, you know, this is, is a struggle all the time in the church. Right, this arms race for the best preaching or music or programming or small groups or technology. An arms race that we are in the fortunate position of not even being able to compete in, so we don't even have to try. But why commit when you can consume? And, and let's just be honest, consuming is easy. It, it works a lot of the time. It feels good, and and there's a reason why its values are so pervasive and powerful. And so consumer-based relationships, they say, ditch the relationship to have your need met. But covenantal relationships say exactly the opposite. They say, sacrifice your personal needs for the sake of the relationship. That's hesed. And I think that's one of the most powerful things that the church has to offer in a society that is, is, is hyper-consumer oriented are these covenant-based relationships, these promise-based relationships. Right? What are churches, if not places, where people are making promises all the time? Pastors, they make promises. Leaders make promises. Parents make promises. People getting baptized make promises. The congregation makes promises to them. New members make promises. Couples getting married make promises. Heck, during stewardship season, I mail you a pledge card. I say, make a promise. 
churches are promise-making places. Because everything we do is grounded in being a community founded on hesed. Founded on loyal love, commitment-based relationships, and not consumer-oriented ones. And the reason for this is that when God's covenant love, when it comes into your heart, it makes you a committer rather than a consumer. You go from worrying about, what am I going to miss out on? Or what am I not going to have if I make this commitment? To seeing everything that you get, everything that you receive by making these commitments that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And the best thing you get is, is trust. This pervasive trust and security that allows you to go through life as a non-anxious person that is invaluable. And it's this covenant love, this kindness that David gives to Mephibosheth. And he expresses it tangibly in these three ways that we see. David gives him protection, provision, and position. So David offers him protection when Mephibosheth throws himself at David's feet, fully fully expecting that David is going to kill him. And his little son Micah too. David responds by saying, he gives him the most common command in the Bible. He says, do not fear. Don't be afraid. David speaks that over his enemy. He says, I'm going to show hesed to you because you're Jonathan's son. I'm going to restore you. So he gives him protection. And then David gives him provision. He, he gives him all the land that belonged to his grandfather back to Mephibosheth. And he instructs Ziba, uh, this guy, his sons and his servants. He's saying, you're going to work the land for him. And that must have been considerable land in order that Mephibosheth and his family would have food to eat. He provides for him because Mephibosheth's physical condition meant that he himself could not work the land. So protection, provision, and then lastly, David gives him position. No longer is Mephibosheth going to be known as, you know, the cripple or or the grandson of the God-forsaken and rejected Saul. From now on, he's going to eat at David's table. It says he will be like one of the king's sons. So he will not be despised for who he is. He, he will be honored because he belongs to David. He's the son of a king. And so friends, this is covenant love in action. Covenant love that expresses itself in concrete ways in order to offer protection, provision, and position. And one of the ways that we can measure our life together is, is, is ask, how are we doing this, as a congregation, are how are we living out this, this covenant love, this hesed? Are we a, a safe church where the vulnerable are protected? Do we provide for the needs of those who worship and work amongst, among us and, and for those in our community who lack? And do we honor those whom the world does not? Do we value those whom the world has deemed of no value? Those are the ways that we can test our hearts to see if they reflect the values, not just of David, but of the son of David. Which brings us to our last question. How can David give this loyal love, this hesed, this grace to Mephibosheth? After all that David has been through with Saul and Saul's family, and I mean, it has been a nightmare to say the least. Saul has done everything he could to destroy David. His family has wanted to destroy David. It would have been just easy for him to finish 
the job. Take care of this last problem and move on with everything. Finish Mephibosheth, kill his son, be done with it. How can David still show them kindness? And this is an especially poignant question because later on, Mephibosheth, he is not going to be loyal to David. He's going to betray him. So the smart thing would have been to to just finish the job. So how can David show kindness to him? How can he give this to him? Knowing all the risks that it entails. And the answer is because David had someone show kindness to him. All the way back in 1 Samuel 20, David asked his friend Jonathan, why is your dad trying to kill me? And Jonathan says, well, I don't think he is. He would have told me, but we'll, we'll find out if he wants to. And yes, the answer was Saul wanted to kill David. So Jonathan doesn't betray David. He shows him covenant love. He says, even though my father sees you as an enemy, you're my brother. Jonathan, even went as far as giving David his his armor and his weapons, basically, he essentially gave David his crown. And Jonathan made promises to David, promises that he kept to the end of his life. And that was the example that enabled David to not just be a promise maker, but a promise keeper. And so, brothers and sisters, I don't think we can ever underestimate the power of being a person who keeps your commitments. The influence that that can have for the mission of Christ in the world. A powerful witness to the gospel is is a person who follows through. Who is dependable and loyal and trustworthy. Who keeps commitments rather than bases relationships on consumer values. Who approaches people, not wondering, what am I going to get out of this? But instead, what can I pour in? What can I invest in this relationship? And we can show this hesed, this loyal love, because the son of David, right? He showed it to us. When tested, he remained faithful. He gave up his crown so that it could be placed on us. He gave up his life so that we could live. He, he came down to earth in order to raise us up to heaven. He protected us and protects us from the wiles and assaults of the enemy, from the voice of condemnation. He has provided us with everything that we need. He's given us his whole self. He's breathed into us the very spirit of God for our life. And when we go to this table, we feast on the very food and drink of salvation. We've, we've got everything we need. We've, we've been provided for perfectly. And he's given us a position that is higher than any other And he did this even while we were still God's enemies. He died in order to call us daughters and sons. And that's who we are when we gather at the king's table. We do so as God's sons and God's daughters. And Jesus did all of this before we knew anything of it, before we did anything to deserve it. So that the word of scripture would be fulfilled. We love with hesed love, loyal love, covenant love because God first loved us with that exact same love in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit please pray with me